You're listening to Global Conversations. Hello, uh, my name is Ella Hartso, and I'm a first-year MGA student at Monk, and this week I am hosting Global Conversations podcast. Today, we're talking about far-right media and the U.S. election with Izzy Jones, who has kindly agreed to talk to us about this topic today. Um, Izzy is a second-year MGA student who studies far-right media and disinformation, among other things. So first of all, I wanted to say thank you, Izzy, for coming and talking on the podcast today. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, So for a bit more of context, we're recording this on Friday, October 30th, and the election is on Tuesday, November 3rd. So next week. And for a bit of um, personal background, I am an American who's been abroad um, and watching U.S. politics unfold during the Trump administration during this election, and it's been pretty wild watching stuff from afar. So um, uh, Izzy, how are you doing in terms of knowing that the election is coming up next week? Um, There's um, a slightly overwhelming sense of impending doom that's pretty hard to ignore. Um, And I think that tensions definitely do feel kind of high. I'm currently in Ohio and I'm pretty self-isolated. I'm taking care of vulnerable family members, so I really never leave the house. So I don't really see much of it on a firsthand basis, but just in the news, there's a lot of polarization, a lot of voter intimidation um, and calls for violence, which are really, really concerning. Um, so it's definitely not the best of times. But at the same time, I think we've seen a big increase in voter turnout, which is really exciting. I know that our local polls have been overwhelmed. There have been lines hours long, which is both an annoyance, but a great thing to see. And so it's definitely a mixed bag. It's an exciting time. But I am looking forward to November 3rd being over with for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I have to see that too. I think like the constant headlines about things, you know, everything is breaking news. Um, yeah, but I saw Texas just um, passed the number of votes that everybody cast in 2016 in Texas today. Um, and we're still a few days out from the election. So that's really exciting. It is indeed. Yeah. So um, first, I wanted to give a little bit of background on political polarization, as you alluded to, um, and then talk a little bit more about Trump and uh, some of the comments he's made about the election on the third. So um, I went to Pew, Pew Research Center for some statistics on this. And actually I'm gonna put this animated data graphic that Pew has in the description um, of the podcast because yeah, I think it's really helpful in understanding this really big shift um, when we think about uh, the polarization of American politics and specifically how the American population, whether they were politically engaged or not, since 1994 has really moved to either side of the political spectrum. And I think there are a lot of reasons for this that we can talk about. But specifically, um, um, the median Democrat and the median median Republican agree on less in terms of political ideology as well as policy implementation than they have in many, many decades. And so within that context, we saw Trump win the presidency in 2016. Um, And more recently, he's as he's been running for uh, re-election against the challenger, Vice President Joe Biden, he's made some comments delegitimizing the result, delegitimizing the results of the November third election, and he's shown a kind of reluctance to accept a peaceful transition of power. So I have some quotes from Trump on July nineteenth when he was asked whether he would accept the results of the election. Trump said, "Quote: I'm not going to say yes. I'm not going to say no." On August twenty fourth, he said, "Quote: The only way they can take this election away from us is." if they uh, rigged the election. On November 23rd, when he was asked about a a peaceful transition of power, he said, get rid of the ballots and you'll have a very peaceful, actually there won't be a transfer, frankly, there will be a continuation. 
And then finally, on September 29th, during the infamous first debate between him and Joe Biden, he was asked if he would encourage his supporters to embrace a peaceful transition of power if he were to lose. And Trump refused to answer the question and instead urged his supporters to, quote, go to the polls and watch carefully. So with all of that context set, I think today what we're really asking is how did we get here into this specific political moment? And also, how does far-right media and disinformation fit into the election that's happening next week? So first, my first question for you, Izzy, is um, can you tell me a little bit maybe about some far-right groups that are at play um, in this election coming up next week? Definitely. So there's a wide array of groups that fall under a really diffuse and broad far-right extremism umbrella. I think currently one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent, is the QAnon movement. Um, They started in late October of 2017 on an anonymous discussion forum called 4chan, and it kind of began with these cryptic postings from an anonymous figure called Q, Mm -hmm. with a self-proclaimed government insider with classified information on a global cabal of satanic pedophilia. I'm pretty sure the word, um, elites that are either predominantly led by or are in control of or have infiltrated the Democratic Party primarily, um, who are seeking to influence U.S. affairs through their control of what they refer to as the deep state and also thus influence foreign affairs through that. Um, then Trump is painted by this conspiracy theory as somewhat of an outsider who's kind of leading the charge against this deep state, um, working against this corrupt global elite and fighting for the common man in this, in this theory. The FBI has deemed them a terrorist threat, um, and they kind of drawn a bit of historical far-right narrative trends and a lot of anti-Semitic tropes and origins, um, and even some of their coded language mirrors anti-Semitic words from, well, throughout history, actually. But they also are a little bit more unique in their kind of decentralization and almost complete lack of a real organizational structure. The only central figure is Q. No one knows who that is or who they are. It could be anyone. It could be a group. It could be anything. But now the narrative has kind of evolved so much over time that it's kind of a beast in and of itself that is kind of self-perpetuated just by its adherence um, and has a really malleable narrative that adapts really well to current events and things like that, which gives it a lot of strength and makes it pretty hard to discredit in some instances. Although a lot of the claims are completely ridiculous, like 5G um, cellular towers are spreading coronavirus and things like that that obviously are just based in no truth whatsoever. But they really took off on social media platforms in the spring of 2020, especially following the outbreak of COVID-19 and lockdown measures. And I think there was also another spike following the murder of George Floyd and subsequent protests. Um, So really any case of societal disruption, they capitalize on. But now they seem to be completely hyper-focused on Trump's re-election. He's a subject of the vast majority of their content, um, only seconded by smear campaigns against Biden as a pedophile or anything else, um, disinformation around his family, especially Hunter Biden's emails, and then, of course, discrediting the election itself and just really amplifying whatever it is that Trump is saying. The other prevalent groups include various militia groups, hyper-nationalist groups like the Proud Boys, um, various incarnations of white supremacists, and, of course, neo-Nazis. And while this is a wide-ranging umbrella with similar trends, like a lot of white supremacy, a lot of xenophobia, things like that, Some of their ideologies are quite unique, like neo-Nazis, for example, don't really see Trump himself as the end-all be-all of their movement. He's more of a strategic step in furthering their own goals, which kind of tend more toward the collapse of U.S. society and democracy. Wow, that's that's 
<laughs> I think that's, that's really, a lot. <laughs> no, I think that's, yeah, that really is so helpful in tying together. Sometimes I think maybe the way that the media portrays these groups is that they're completely fringe. Like um, it's hard to sometimes connect the dots between them and also distinguish them. Um, what really strikes me when you're talking about QAnon though, which I think is what I find really interesting about it is how malleable it is. And definitely. Yeah. And maybe how also expansive it is. Like QAnon has taken under its wing, you know, vaccine deniers, or even just more broadly people who are tired of the pandemic and, and want to live in a fantasy where it's, you know, not real, um, which is really encompassing for a conspiracy theory. Yes. I also think its global reach has been expanding quite considerably. I know that before spring 2020, predominantly it was English-based, predominantly on Facebook, um, but there's been a larger audience growing on Telegram, um, especially in German. Uh, yeah, I was reading this yeah. article that said it had like 200,000 German followers, which yeah, is it's not really nothing. Yeah. No, not at all. And then I think that the content, I think for a long time, has been translated into various other languages, but I think that that's only been increasing. What is Telegram? Telegram? I don't actually know that much about, but it's another social media platform. Uh, I think it's more uh, encrypted and anonymized. Um, and it's a really favored hub by a lot of extremists. The Islamic State uses it a lot or used to use it a lot um, for a lot of their communications. And you can just have like encrypted chat groups that protect okay, that different extremist sense. conversations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that checks out. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I guess the platforms themselves are also a really interesting aspect of this. Um, I think you mentioned Facebook or other social media platforms in the spring of 2020. Can you talk more about maybe like the mechanisms or like the ways that extremists are, are talking to each other and connecting. Definitely. So it's no secret that social media is a big spreader of disinformation and also contributes really heavily to polarization, but due to algorithms that create echo chambers, um, just keep recommending you content that reinforces your worldviews deeper and deeper and deeper with content that is in no way verified that definitely could be completely false. And that frequently at least is misleading, if not outright lies. Um, so I think that social media in some ways is responsible for creating the conditions that kind of enabled this widespread emergence of extremist narratives, um, that have broken into the mainstream. So they're obviously a favorite spot. I know Facebook is really big for QAnon in English, um, specifically through private groups. and with QAnon, their biggest, I guess, like what sustains them is their community aspect and their participatory mechanisms. So having people chat in forums, having people share ideas, share information, things like that. And they actually refer to their users um, and adherents as researchers who are collecting evidence in some of their materials, which is quite a concerning way to frame it. But it's an entirely adherent-shaped narrative at this point. Like its central thread really has been disseminated and diffused across, like you mentioned, a wide array of things from vaccines to 5G towers to Hunter Biden's emails. So it's quite wide-reaching. Um, but yeah, as individual users themselves who are really responsible for spreading a lot of its content on Facebook in these groups, and typically smaller groups as well. If the groups are larger on Facebook, they're more so used to just disseminate new videos or announcements and things like that, because they don't want to lose that personal um, connection that you get from a smaller chat group. They're not that small, like a couple thousand probably, but still small enough where people can individually contribute and participate. But on Facebook especially, there's a lot of manipulation of hashtags. Um, to kind of disguise QAnon references and things like that, a lot of coded language, and then also using different characters um, to spell out QAnon, like characters that resemble, resemble the word um, to avoid detection 
mechanisms that Facebook and other platforms have. And Facebook, especially along with, I think, Twitter and I think YouTube, has recently announced bans on QAnon or that they're upstepping their efforts to curb the spread of its content online. But of course, their capacity to do so is questioned as the scale of this movement is just massive. And they're becoming more and more creative with their ways to mask their content and avoid detection. And then crackdowns um, like Facebook's on groups like this typically don't stem them out. They more so just cause them to migrate to different platforms. And there are a lot of platforms that describe themselves as free speech platforms that are welcoming them, or at the very least making no attempts or signaling no intent to keep them away. And I think incredibly, extremely concerningly, there's um, a platform called Gab, which is another um, anonymous discussion platform. And the creator welcomed QAnon in an explicit statement and then also celebrated the large QAnon following that the community platform already had. And there's also a newer platform that was created explicitly for QAnon. And one of their most prominent slogans is where we go one, we go all. And the platform is named WeGo. Um, reference that. It's incredibly concerning. And it's self-described, and this is a quote from their website, as intended to rescue social media from the evil bad guys by building a dope blockchain, community-moderated social network to save the world. So it's a very self-congratulatory, very insulated, echo chamber-esque platform that already has tens of thousands of users. Wow. I mean, I have a few questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, the first thing I was going to say is, I think this aspect of personal belonging and community makes a lot of sense for me. Like if you were going to build power in some sort of collective, this like intimacy seems to be really important to me. Like what you're talking about with like, I guess in the grand scheme of things, a Facebook group with, you know, a couple or a few thousand people, is it, it doesn't seem that small, but in terms of the internet it's actually quite small. And the importance on that, I guess, is what sucks people into that broad coalition that we were kind of talking about before. Yeah, um, yeah. And then this idea of like them also getting creative with language. So yeah, I was, I read something about hashtag save the children and yeah, their, their monopolization of language around, yeah, saving children and, and children's rights. Can you talk about that at all? Or do you know anything about that? I know a bit about that. But yeah, they're definitely two of their, I think, main threads for him justifying their narratives are they're fighting against global pedophiles and that this global satanic cabal is bad inherently, mostly because they're all pedophiles. Um, And that draws back to Pizzagate, which I think was a bit before QAnon officially emerged. But yeah, it was absolutely insane. Um, Yeah, I ate at Comet Pizza because I'm from DC. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, I've actually eaten at that pizzeria. Um, And they, I remember, if I remember correctly, an aspect of that conspiracy theory is that uh, Hillary Clinton was in had a had a ring of uh, child trafficking in the basement oh. of Comet Pizza, but Comet Pizza Pizza doesn't have a basement. Exactly, exactly, one hundred percent. That's scary because um, I don't know how this man was affiliated specifically to extremist narratives, but it did cause um, someone with far right sympathies to go and bring weapons to the pizza place and attempt to rescue the children. I don't think anyone is actually injured, but obviously that's an incredibly dangerous situation and he was obviously arrested and it's bizarre, but it's still mentioned in um, QAnon discussions, not anywhere near as frequently as it once was. And I think a lot of people thoroughly believed that Hillary Clinton was either explicitly involved in that or had plenty to do with it. And I think it maybe not played a significant part in voters' decisions in 2016, but definitely didn't help um, her image around 
those groups. But then also, uh, they also have like a really patriotic lens, um, like painting themselves as the true patriots, protecting true American interests, things like that. And President Trump himself, when asked about them, says that he doesn't know much about them, even though there are multiple QAnon references at his rallies, QAnon hats, signs, things like that. Um, and he's spoken about them a bit in the past before, I think at least earlier in the summer, if not this fall as well. Um, but all he said was, well, I know that they're really patriotic and they're fighting for the U.S. And I appreciate that. And then also I know that they're against pedophilia and that's great. So why not, like, why not support it essentially? I think the use of that word pedophilia is clearly a signaling, no? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that it is. I definitely think it is. And I mean, just the refusal to condemn it when you are well aware that it contributes to violence, that it has spread hateful and harmful disinformation is irresponsible at its best, but mm. is complicit entirely because there's no way that the president of the United States is not informed on this massive movement that, yeah, no, it's just not realistic. Well, especially since the FBI, I think, <laughs> um, has come out and said, you know, this is a, this is a terrorist group. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Uh -huh. But he likes to discredit them as well. So. Right. Right. Extra layer of fun. Mm -hmm. So that's a good transition. I wanted to ask you, what do you think the relationship between these groups and Trump are and how does it maybe tie into the election that's happening next week? It's a really interesting question. I don't, they're obviously pretty obscure, so I don't want to explicitly say there's a direct relationship that Trump is, you know, getting them intentionally, things like that. We can only infer that. We can't confirm that. But these groups have made it kind of their sole and primary focus um, within their content, within their track groups, things like that to get Trump reelected. Um, and big themes that have come along with that, like overall campaign are themes against voter suppression, voter intimidation, and then a lot of messaging discrediting, discrediting the results of the election. Um, and one thing I was reading recently, some QAnon account had found some reporter who was Democratic, or I'm not um, a reporter, sorry, some Democratic official talking about how once the election results come in, it might initially seem that Trump is in the lead because mail-in ballots won't have been counted yet. And they are predicted to be more blue than red. And they interpreted this as like an admission that the mail-in ballots are fraudulent and that the Democratic Party is using them to enact some kind of kind of a coup, a coup, sorry, <laughs> a coup over um, the election and try to like seize control away from Trump unfairly and fraudulently. So that's been incredibly damaging to faith in the election, faith in US institutions, and just faith in the election process in general, which is incredibly concerning, but then also contributes to potential violence at polls, um, around polls before, and especially I think after the election, no matter which way the election goes, is incredibly concerning, but they've made the election their prerogative um, explicitly and have not been shy about that at all. And I think that it's really given them kind of the fire or the flame that has allowed them to expand as prolifically as they seem to be currently doing. Yeah, I think like maybe one of the things that you mentioned earlier is what I'm thinking about that they people who are part of QAnon consider themselves to be patriotic. Yes. And I think what's interesting is like they want to engage with the electoral process. Like they believe yeah. that engaging somehow in institutions and, you know, mainstream politics is a way to undo this like secret cabal of, of satanic child killers or pedophiles or whatever. Um, and so it's this merging of like real world and fantasy, which I guess is what makes certain conspiracy theories. It's what allows them to have so much mileage. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's grounded in some aspect of reality. Yeah, exactly. 
Totally. Yeah. Um, I think also there's got to be something with QAnon and the pandemic. Like definitely. Mm-hmm. Can you speak on that at all? Maybe the relationship. I definitely can. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So there was the most, I think, the most predominant spike in QAnon users on Facebook observed right when the coronavirus outbreak or COVID nineteen outbreak really took off in the U.S. Um, and corresponded with lockdowns. And it's been capitalized upon in their content, not only just through general chaos, like instigating more fear, um, which of course makes people more vulnerable to extreme emotions, to kind of accept information that seems scary, seems frightening without actually consulting sources. Um, And then just more vulnerable to polarization as for some reason, the pandemic was almost instantly politicized. Um, So yeah, they've really, really relied on that. They've also kind of used mask mandates and lockdowns and things like that. Um, and frame them as violations of constitutional rights and things along those lines, which is really, really concerning. A lot of that was flamed and uh, further instigated by Trump's own comments. Um, and I think that really kind of culminated with the attempted kidnapping of Michigan Governor um, Gretchen Whitmer, which is a thoroughly concerning development by a militia. I don't think they had explicit QAnon ties, and I don't think that we could say that um, they're directly linked to Trump or anything like that. However, he had tweeted earlier in that month um, his support for liberating Michigan from lockdown efforts, um, which was directly followed by armed protesters storming the Michigan government and demanding the state reopen. And then this attack, well, attempted attack, came not shortly after. So at the very least, it's contributing to an environment which almost attempting to normalize such violence, which is really concerning, um, and just kind of added legitimacy to those thoughts and that way of thinking about the pandemic itself and the election. And then the anti-Black racism protests that emerged after the killing of George Floyd also have been a big element in a lot of their content um, and kind of attempts to instigate a bit of a race war and paint Democrats as out of control, um, as supporting violent mobs who are burning down Democratic-run cities and things like that, um, and the need for more Trump leadership, more forceful leadership, and then also the kind of legitimization of far-right violence in uh, being armed at protests, at intimidating protesters, um, at intimidating voters, things like that. And in, unfortunately, a few cases actually engaging in violence that has resulted in death. Um, But they really capitalized on the disarray, on the chaos and the uncertainty, and just, I think, of the heightened fear of people, um, and manipulated that into more support for their own narratives, but then also just increasing polarization and an increasing tolerance for violence, which I don't think was as widespread before the pandemic began. Yeah, it's like this extreme uh, militarization of, I think, a classic Trump idea, which is that I'm not an insider, I represent the outsiders. But even as he's, you know, been voted into office (laughs) as, as the president, he still uses this rhetoric of I represent the outsiders or whatever, but now there's this, yeah, this increased uh, level of violence. So a lot of this almost normalization of violence, um, especially targeted toward voting and voters, um, and also the erosion of trust in America's electoral system, has been driven explicitly by Trump, both in his tweets and public statements at debates, things like that. His campaign actually has a website called armyfortrump.com. And it that's opens- Trump's official, that's an official, official, official campaign website, but it's by his official campaign, as far as I can tell. Wow. Yeah. Yes, definitely. At the very least, they are not distancing themselves from it. So too much association at the very least. But uh, when you go to the website, if you should, you probably shouldn't. But 
experiment with the quote, fight with President Trump now. President Trump has fought the radical Democrats and fake news media over the last four years, and then a call to join the army for Trump. Inherently militarized language, um, not a direct call for violence in all technicality, but in every way insinuating that that's okay, that's what you should be doing, that's what's necessary. Um, and yeah, it's horribly scary. And then, as you mentioned earlier, he uh, called his supporters to watch the polls. And as he's well aware, many of them include militias, neo-Nazi groups, and other violent groups um, who have already come armed to places like the Michigan government to protest against, lo- against lockdowns. Um, and that's a pretty explicit call for voter intimidation, in my opinion. Um, and yeah, like I said earlier, that's been really mirrored the QAnon channels and messaging and other far-right narratives as well. And then his attempts to just kind of discredit the entire electoral system are really interesting and a little bit hypocritical because he's out there urging Republicans to vote, things like that, but then saying, oh, but if we don't win, then obviously it's fraudulent, um, you can't trust it, and all these great things, um, which might not be too damaging in the present context um, on the election, but probably could be, but at the very least will have really dangerous ramifications for eroding America's trust in its electoral system and institutions and things like that going forward, which make the American people even more vulnerable to disinformation. Um, yeah. yeah, because I think, yeah, that's such a good point because it, it again gets murky because I think there are real questions around how representative, you know, American democracy is. Like, I think some measures have been taken um, to suppress like uh, voting in America, like we can talk about gerrymandering, we can talk about uh, ridiculous voter ID laws, like we can talk about stuff like that. But I think it's pretty integral to a, de- to a democracy that elections are taken seriously, no matter who wins. But as you're saying, it, I, th- I haven't thought about the future implications because I'm so wrapped up in the present moment with Trump. Understandably. Yeah, but there are, there are deep, long-lasting implications of questioning the very system itself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, we kind of became complacent with our own democracy um, up until 2016. I know that before Trump's election, I was not particularly politically engaged myself. The majority of my friends really weren't. Like, you'd vote, but that was about it. I never really thought of it too, too, too much beyond that, which of course is an enormous privilege as a white woman to be able to do that. But now I know that there are so many people who are engaged. I think it's reminded us exactly how much is really at stake in elections like this, which is inspiring. Um, but definitely concerning still. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you so much for talking to me about, about far right groups and QAnon and the election. I really appreciate it. And um, I hope you stay safe and stay well, especially until November 3rd. Thank you. And same to you. Thanks again for having me.